moving smoothly toward tomorrow night's spectacular launch of Apollo 17 on what may be man's last trip to the moon in the 20th century. The countdown and other preparations, in fact, reported going as well or better than in any previous Apollo flight. The weather today has been cloudy with some rain. More of the same may be in store for tomorrow. But not enough to worry anybody except those at the Cape here and uh, those anywhere up to 500 miles away whose view might be obscured by the clouds. The crew has finished training after a 16-month grind, which had at least one pleasant aspect. They've been allowed to sleep late the last few mornings to adjust for tomorrow's nighttime departure to the moon. More now from Morton Dean on the three astronauts who will make this flight. The space veteran on this mission is 38-year-old Eugene Cernan, a suave sentimentalist who hails from Chicago. He has been in space twice before, one of the few men to walk in space, although not on the moon, but he has been in the neighborhood. Cernan flew on Apollo 10, which swung to within 10 miles of the moon, testing the systems to prove that Apollo 11 could do what it did several months later, accomplish man's first lunar landing. Cernan, a Navy captain, is commander of this mission. Asked whether he is a tough man at the helm, he answered the way officers often do. No, he would not describe himself as a tough man, but when you expect something to be done, he added, it's hard to listen to reasons why it is not done. Because this is the final Apollo mission, Cernan believes the historic significance of the voyage requires that his final remarks before lifting off for home should be tailored for history. It's an opportunity, uh, an opportunity when probably millions of people throughout the world, not just in this country, uh, are listening and watching uh, to what's going on. And uh, in a day, in our time, uh, when we all profess to believe in, in peace and uh, and unanimity among the peoples of this earth, uh, it might be an opportunity just to remind the people throughout the world that this is what we are really striving for on earth and to remind them that, uh, you know, we're really a pretty small pea in a large part of, uh, of uh, space that we call infinity. Cernan's companion on the moonwalk is an astronaut who will acquire a double distinction, a birth and a last. Harrison H. Schmidt, he's called Jack, he will be the last Apollo astronaut to step down onto the moon, but he will become the first professional scientist to do so. All other Americans in space have been experienced jet pilots. Jack Schmidt did not even know how to fly when he joined the space program. A geologist, he learned all about flying when most of the other astronauts were learning all about rocks. A third distinction of sorts is that he is but one of two bachelor astronauts. Born in tiny Silver City, New Mexico, 37 years ago, Schmidt has some big-time academic credentials, a bachelor's in science from Caltech, a doctorate in geology from Harvard. He was one of the first astronaut scientists selected by NASA. That was seven years ago. At last, he will fly and probably can thank those critics of the space program who have constantly barked at NASA that science was given a backseat in the space program to engineering and public relations stunting. And uh, so, uh, so I feel that I'm there because of, of, uh, of my geological background and I accept that. And I think it represents uh, a, a significant step in one respect in that, that we, will, we are willing now to branch out in the specialties that we use. Well, while Cernan and Schmidt are gathering rocks and headlines on the moon, Ron Evans will be piloting the mothership America overhead. 
If it were up to Evans, his spacesuit would probably be designed in bright red with houndstooth pants. Off-duty, he prefers snappy clothes. Born in a Kansas farm town, Evans studied electrical engineering at the University of Kansas, has logged more than 4,000 hours as a jet pilot. Definitely believe we'll go back to the moon at one point or another. And uh, we like to uh, call Apollo 17 uh, the beginning because it's really the culmination of the Apollo program. And the Apollo program itself is uh, the beginning of, of uh, space flight and what's going to come in, in uh, later years. Evans is 39 years old, has two children, says obviously there is some danger associated with going to the moon, but he says he doesn't sit around and worry about it. And then adds, when I sit on top of that big spacecraft up there, meaning the Apollo, my heart's going to go pity pat, you know, just a little bit. Morton Dean, CBS News, at the Manned Spacecraft Center. Five space travelers already are aboard Apollo 17. They made the trip from their quarters after the traditional breakfast of sunflower seeds and up the 360-foot elevator into their cramped quarters inside the spacecraft. They're tiny desert mice, like these, chosen because they need no water and eat only seeds. But the trip will end badly for them. They'll be put away on return so scientists can study how they were affected by cosmic rays. So it's mice and men off for the moon tomorrow night at 9.53 Eastern Time, and we'll be covering that departure live. In Paris today, negotiators from North Vietnam and the United States postponed today's scheduled meeting of the ceasefire talks. Presumably, after five hours of talk yesterday, they were using today to check with their home offices. They meet again tomorrow, and it looks as though things are on schedule. Things are on schedule here at Cape Kennedy as well, with the Apollo 17 launch still set for tomorrow evening. Jim Hartz will be joining me in covering that story, and here is his report on what happened today. Jim? Thank you, Marek. The baby boomers, people like Marek and myself, enjoyed the most benign period in human history. The superpower nuclear standoff gave us 50 years of relative peace. We had cheap energy from inherent oversupply of oil. Grain supply grew faster than population growth and we had the cheapest food that humanity's ever enjoyed. And the climate warmed due to the highest level of solar activity for 8,000 years. All those trends are now reversing. We are now in the twilight of that age of abundance. There is a tendency to think that tomorrow will be very much like today. But the world is changing under our feet for the worse, and the rate of change is accelerating. It is the responsibility of the community of this institute to think realistically about what the future holds for us, what our choices are, and the consequences of the different paths we might choose. Society has entrusted us with that role by virtue of our presence here. Daytime is planned for 73 hours, which is uh, obviously a little more than three days, which is longer than any other flight 
has either planned or been on the, on the lunar surface. Uh, this includes three seven-hour EVAs, uh, plus or minus uh, around seven hours, depending upon how our oxygen and how our water and consumables go while we're on the lunar surface itself. The first EVA uh, will be, for the most part, uh, uh, in and around the lunar module, where we uh, get the majority of our scientific equipment uh, deployed, our lunar ALSEP package uh, deployed. And of course, we have to unfold, unpack the lunar rover, and it's it's a very big housekeeping EVA where we have to get all of our equipment out of the descent stage of the uh, lunar module, uh, get the rover uh, in operational condition. We have to load the rover all up with all our tools and uh, and all these uh, all our radios and all the scientific gear, and then uh, spend uh, about the next uh, three hours, three to four hours on the uh, on the uh, LSEP package, which is a scientific package, deploying it, setting up uh, the uh, uh, nuclear power generator, which keeps it running and what have you. Uh, the last hour and a half or so will be uh, uh, strictly on field geology, uh, in and around an area of about two kilometers or a little less than two miles from the lunar module. The second EVA will, uh, will be a seven-hour EVA also, and its primary purpose is to go to the furthest point, uh, almost eight kilometers, uh, away from the lunar module, up against the base of uh, some very high mountains. The world has a number of problems that affect our future. There seems to be less connection to the things that really matter. Peace between countries, humanity between people, the environment, and the list goes on. If we don't take care of the world, we will have great difficulty carrying humanity into the next century. Global warming is the most serious threat to planetary existence ever faced by humans. I will be telling you about the causes and the direct impact on people as a result of the carbon emissions in our atmosphere. I will also discuss what we can do to reverse the effect. Our consumption of energy directly affects the atmosphere. The atmosphere is thickening because of the pollution we are putting into the air. This is a problem because it is trapping in more heat from the sun rays and warming up the earth by too much, making it too hot. This affects the ecological balance. CO2 levels have risen consistently since 1958, and the average annual temperature has risen at the same rate. Even though some governments have created carbon laws, there has been little change in the levels of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. To the uh, south and to the west, and over and above a uh, uh, a cliff that we think we can negotiate with the rover that's some 300 feet high. Uh, this is a primary objective of that lunar module EV, or that uh, EVA and during this period of time of course we have some scientific uh, equipment which we still are in a process of deploying that has to be deployed at further distances uh, from the lunar module. Uh, EVA 3 again is seven hours. Uh, it's built around uh, going in the opposite direction to uh, to uh, strictly work on geology, uh, uh, to go to an area where we think we can uncover some of the uh, uh, additional secrets, if you will, uh, some of the uh, different types of materials that are exposed uh, at the site of Taurus Littrow. Now, you got to remember a great deal of this uh, seven hours on each EVA is, uh, uh, is eaten up by what we call overhead. Uh, you have to get out of the lunar module, have to go through a loading process on the uh, lunar rover and get the new gear out and when you come back in you have to again uh, sort of do a great deal of housekeeping outside the lunar module uh, as, as uh, concerns your lunar 
uh, rover and uh, the other material you're going to be working with. The lunar rover, uh, I consider a, a must uh, for our mission. We can certainly accomplish a great deal without it, but we're going to be limited to just a few uh, kilometers distance from the lunar module. Uh, obviously, we won't be able to get to some of our major uh, geologic objectives uh, at the site of Taurus Lidro. As I said, we can accomplish a lot, but not nearly what we can accomplish uh, if we do have the rover. Uh, we'll, we will be going uh, further than uh, away from the lunar module than any other flight uh, for no other reason but that the geologic requirements as such are there to go to these places to get the information. Uh, as compared to Apollo 14, which was the last flight without a, a lunar rover, uh, uh, the crew spent uh, several hours just walking to get to one major crater and then they were got so tired walking uphill and uh, they got there they accomplished their goal but they had to uh, pass over many of their other goals because of the time consumed just walking from place to place the lunar rover uh, is, is sort of a an order of magnitude it's a whole different world in terms of your capability to go places and get things done in a minimal amount of time some of the effects of global warming include glaciers melting all over the world at an alarming rate. In Nepal, 40% of the population depend on glacial ice melt for their fresh water. When there are no more glaciers, there will be no more fresh water. In the last 650,000 years, the Earth's CO2 level has never gone above 300 parts per million. In the last 100 years, the CO2 levels have reached a level of 600 parts per million. When there is more CO2, the temperature increases because there is more heat trapped inside, which results in more dramatic, stronger storms and extreme heat like the Australian heat wave in 2013. Besides that, it's a super little machine. <laughs> How about your, your television plans for this mission? Are about the same as before? What are your plans? We plan to, uh, to televise uh, the transposition and docking, that's after we leave Earth orbit uh, on our way to the moon. The trouble is, uh, being a night launch at transposition and docking comes about one o'clock in the morning for most people, and uh, it's been seen before. Uh, we're doing it uh, from the standpoint of interest and also, of course, uh, uh, from the standpoint of engineering in case we have any problems. The majority and probably the most interesting uh, uh, part of our uh, televised activities are going to be on the lunar surface. Uh, and fortunately, it works out that uh, most of you who have an interest in the program, uh, who share the excitement uh, that we share and the accomplishments and the challenge and satisfaction of it all, don't have to stay up all night to watch it. Uh, I think uh, the EVAs turn out to be about 3 o'clock in the afternoon uh, and run for seven hours uh, into the evening uh, for three consecutive days. The only problem, of course, one of them is on a Monday night, and I'm sure that the Monday night football game is going to give us a, a challenge for prime time. Let me just say that I think uh, every every crew, uh, because of the way they get involved, feels a tremendous sense of responsibility. Well, because of the responsibility that's been been, been given them, uh, not just simply the opportunity, but uh, you know, it's, it's a big thing when someone puts a spacecraft in your hands and, uh, and puts a lot of faith in you job that is not meaningful just on a small scale, but it's meaningful on a, on a large, on a worldwide scale. Uh, uh, the responsibility, for instance, of, uh, of Neil Armstrong, uh, when he stepped on the surface of the boat, was a responsibility he had, he had not just to himself, but to his country.
that accomplishment uh, in itself probably shows much uh, in this country. Yeah, that's a 
On December 11th, 1972, Apollo 17 landed in the Taurus littoral region, located on the eastern rim of Mare Serenitatis. The landing site is a flat valley bordered by mountains on the north and south. There are small craters about 100 meters in diameter around the site.
Another effect from the ocean's increase in temperature is greater evaporation. This causes the surrounding lands to be drier because the moisture is sucked out of the, out of the soil and then you have drought. In the next 50 to 70 years, scientists predict that the polar ice cap will be completely gone. It has receded 40% in the last 40 years. The heat builds up in the Arctic Ocean because the water surrounding the ice cap is warmer, causing the ice cap itself to melt. When the ice cap melts, the water absorbs the heat instead of it being reflected off the ice. In the end, it is the ice that moderates the temperature for the planet. No ice, hotter temperature. Planet Earth cannot continue to exist under such stress. Ice shelves in Antarctica were thought to be sustainable for 100 years. Scientists were shocked to see a large portion melt in just 35 days. This caused the sea level to rise. If all of Antarctica melts, it will increase the sea level by 20 feet. The effect would be entire cities, states, and countries underwater. Florida, San Francisco, the Netherlands, Beijing, New York City, all of them permanently submerged. The loss of life is said to be in the hundreds of millions if things continue as they are. On my mark, I've got everything, hammer, gnomon, film, okay, mark it, you have a gravimeter measurement going. Doctor, copy the mark. Copy, Bob. Okay. Okay, Bob, the blue-gray rocks are bretches. They're multilithic, gray matrix. I guess. Uh, there are fragments in them, but it doesn't look like more than about uh, 10 or 15 percent fragments. Uh, some of the light, the light colored fragments seem to have fine grain, uh, very fine grain, dark halos around them. The zap pits do not have white halos, so I suspect they're not crystalline. They might be glass. They might be the vitric or glassy branches. At least the one big rock we have here. There's a uh, rough, uh, very rough 
exfoliation in them uh, that, uh, and I'm not sure, it's shown by uh, elongate knobs on the surface. It looks like a fracture foliation of some kind. Yeah, that rock is almost gonna have come down, don't you think? Oh, no question about it. I bet you, I bet you it's the same as the blue-gray rocks we see up higher. Here's some more blue-gray ones over here. Let's uh, let's start taking. Oh yeah, look at the look at the size of some of these light fragments yeah. in here. Yeah, but it's still. I don't. It looks like they're dominantly matrix fractures. There, there are light-colored fragments, and uh, they may be crystalline. Okay. Yeah. They are. They're very light colored. They look like the uh, shattered anorthosites. Uh, 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 they have white halos. On the timeline. Uh, yeah, I think that's what those fragments are. Jack, let's get a piece of this one right here. Okay, <laughs> biggest one here. Better up. 7.8. This is the blue gray variety. Okay, pretty close. Okay, five, one, four is the, uh, okay, I'll take it back on the uh, fresh surface. These look like fragment brushes, although the fragment size is fairly small. They're dark gray fragments and the light fragments we talked about. The gray ones are very fine green and dense, although I see flashes that indicate they may be crystalline. The light-colored fragments are as I described them earlier, I think. Tell me, fun. We never did get your LMP readout here. Uh, negative. Okay. Okay, How Jack, we'll take it to the way in the middle of the time. I'm going to give it an EMU readout. We'd appreciate it if you haven't got any. So you got a few Okay, I'm, uh... Stand by, Dean. Got a rock to go. That's from up higher. That's a little higher. See that shot? Okay, the first rock was from about a uh, 514, was from a meter above the base of the rock. 515 from about a meter and a uh, half. Here, can I get this in here? Can you get some uh, on either side of those two now? Yep. I'll leave you open for a minute. Well, okay, just so they don't fall out. Am I in? No. All right, let me get this up. Okay. Okay, go ahead. Let me try from back here. Of course, that's a north-south overhang. Yeah. That one? Yeah, you're facing right into yeah. the east. Yeah. I don't know if I can get a piece back here or not. How about right where you start? Yeah. Right here? I can get that. Yeah, that's good. Oh, beautiful. Hit the gnomon. Well, re it didn't move. It just tilted it. This it? Yeah, that's it right there.
Be careful. Yep. It's still there. Yeah, I, I got it. I need to get this rid of this. Okay. That's in there. I, I haven't closed your bag yet. And we got to get a get one soil sample up the hill here. Oh, we're gonna get the rate. We only got a soil sample though up here. So well, we'll get the rate sample right over here on this slope. Uh, where did that thing go, Jack? Right here. Okay, was that last there sample in uh, five one eight as well? That's it right there. No, we haven't put it in yet. Okay. Bob, that'll go in four ninety nine. Copy that. You get it? 80 yards back to intermediate. Okay. Okay. Bob, this is a fairly uniform looking rock. It does have some uh, uh, widely spaced fractures across it. Uh, clearly crystalline and has crystalline inclusions in it. Hey, Jack. Copy that. Try to get some soil from around that thing. Uh, both. Pop, both rocks look like they might be in the anorthocytic class. Your back's still open partway too. Of rocks, it's just that it, uh, one is, uh, has the appearance of being a poor, finer green matrix. Looks like a porphyry in, uh, in, out in the uh, boulder. Okay, and a reminder as you photograph okay. it, remember that the yeah, photographs yeah. in the southwest quadrant there will be the best ones around the corner on two sides there will be the best ones to show the structure through the whole rock. Yes, sir. Oh, the southwest, south and west. Roger. South and west, Roger. yeah. South to west in shade. Well, no, no, you mean the uh, south, south and east. Roger, the southwest face, or face is not quite south. Okay, well, I, I've got a stereo. I'll just continue my stereo around here. Hey, Jack, you can get way under there, and I know you can get, get soil. I don't know how long it's been shadowed, but I've been shadowed at as long as this rock's been here. Okay, I'll do that. Way out under there. I've got a stereo. Oh, I've already got it. Well, I'm getting it from this way, and they okay. uh, they like that. Go ahead. Did we kick any dirt in under there? No. I got some uh, I don't know. data from here to okay, three. So. Do you want it? But way down okay, in there. Good. I've got a couple of range of 089, range 6.1. Go down, I should read 14.4. Yeah, we want to get two sides of these rocks, and you can see their And the parking as well. They'll follow their tracks back to the turn. Back to hole in the wall, right? Right. And the bearing to the, it there is uh, 081, and range is 5.7. I got that. Okay. okay, I took those. I took that stereo. Okay, and if I could remind you guys, we got a plan to come up here before you leave the uh, high uphill area here. There's no point climbing up here twice, remember? Yes, sir, Bob. How much time we got here now? Uh, stand by. We've got about uh, 12 minutes if we don't extend. 12 to 13. Okay, got your bag? Okay, we got 12 to 13 minutes left of the station unless you take that extra 10 minutes that we were offering you. Let, let's take it, Bob. We gotta get the rake. Let's take it. We'll okay. need a. Let me try again. Okay. I don't know whether I can or not. You know how far under you're getting, Brian Jim? Uh, yeah, I got in a. I got under a. An east-west overhang about uh, 20 centimeters, way back. By the way, that like it goes even farther, but that's about as far as I can reach back. Just an apple. Just an object for me. 
Okay, I copy that. That's and, bag 500. And 17, if you want to just take a minute, you might look up in the sky and notice that our camera's taking a beautiful picture of Mother Earth. Our standard of living is directly proportional to how cheap and abundant we make our energy supply. Comparative advantage between nations will also be based on relative energy cost. All the problems that are coming towards us over the next score of years, mass starvation and population collapse, climate cooling, nuclear proliferation, Chinese aggression, will be compounded if our own energy costs are not as low as they could be. Consider buying more efficient electrical appliances. The government gives a tax rebate on Enerstar appliances. When buying a car, people need to think about a fuel-efficient vehicle. A smart car or hybrid vehicle is a conscientious choice. Government needs to make renewable forms of energy, like solar or wind power, affordable for the people so that alternative energy is a choice. Support the purchase of locally grown foods and fuels like biofuels. The 100 mile diet is good for reducing greenhouse gases because the product doesn't have to travel as far to get to your dinner table. Don't buy strawberries in February because they come from somewhere that is far away. Recycle and buy recycled and recyclable products and don't buy overpackaged items. The packaging ends up in landfill sites. David Suzuki suggests, we have to acquire a deeper understanding for the total cost of modern life in the, concept, in the context of a finite planet. Every benefit and convenience has hidden effects that we inflect on the environment. Individually, we have the power to make a change, but we must do something now to carry humanity 